This episode is sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization. Offered online and on campus. Visit vusustainableengineering.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, socially distancing here at home in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, what happens to corporate sustainability post-pandemic? Why coronavirus has exposed the fragility of autocentric cities? The link between biodiversity and coronavirus? A conversation with PepsiCo's chief sustainability officer? And how youth activists celebrated Earth Day? Happy 50 Earth Day! This week on 350. It's April 24th, 2020. Happy Earth Week. Hope you had a good Earth Day and welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from her secret hideaway at home in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. I like my secret hideaway. I, I, I like your secret hideaway, too. It's actually wonderful. I have a wonderful home office. I'm so lucky. Yeah, Very we do. Lucky. Yeah, we're both yeah. lucky in that regard. How was your Earth Day? My Earth Day was cold. It actually dipped into the freezing zone below 32 Fahrenheit here this week on wow. Earth Day. But I did not. that did not keep me from getting out and um, doing one of my little hobbies. Um, I've, got, I've become very interested, I've always been a bird person, but very interested in bird counting and doing that with my eyes and ears. And so I spent some time on Earth Day doing a little bit of that. Uh, I'm going to be doing more this weekend. But I, uh, I hope you tweeted your bird counting. <laughs> oh, you know what? I did not tweet my bird count. I, I was sadly remiss in that. But uh, I did hear... I did hear much earlier than I normally hear um, the goldfinches, which we have usually in the summer. They, I watch them on my echinacea every every year, uh, eating up my echinacea. But um, I've been hearing them all. I haven't seen them yet, but I keep hearing them. So <laughs> what about you? What about you? Well, you know, I normally don't have much to do beyond, you know, normal work stuff on Earth Day. This year I did. I, I gave a speech. I was supposed to be there in person, but for obvious reasons, I wasn't at a company not too far from here in Pleasanton, California called Workday. They're a cloud computing company that uh, does financial management and uh, human capital management software. And um, they have a great team uh, of uh, you know, coming up the, the sustainability um, you know, pathway and um, you know, was able to talk to them about what's going on and Kudos to Eric Hansen there, uh, the head of sustainability at Workday. Um, uh, an army of one with a little help. He's the sustainability director and global impact is his title, uh, but um, doing great work and uh, making some new uh, net zero carbon emissions uh, plans. And so, yeah, so that was my birthday. Otherwise, it was just, you know, Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> Workday is a terrific company. They were actually one of the earliest uh, ag 
aggregated energy deals. They participated in one of those. So very good work being done by that army of one yeah. <laughs> over there. But yeah, terrific. I mean, he, well, I'm sure Eric would say he's got a whole a whole squadron behind him. But uh, you know, does, I don't know probably. exactly but how yeah. that works. But you yeah. know what I'm really excited about is. We have, uh, starting next week and through May and into June, uh, a stellar, stellar lineup of webcasts that we're going to be doing. And um, I, I just, I couldn't be more excited. I, I, and I know you've got one coming up. I'm, I'm doing... Uh, two. I have two Two, two. Great. Up. Well, you talk about that in a minute. I've got three, uh, not to one-up you. It just happens to be that way. Oh. On Tuesday, April 28th, we'll be releasing our biennial state of the profession report put together by our colleague John Davies, looking at salaries and, and uh, headcount and uh, remits of, of sustainability professionals around the world. Uh, two days later, on April 30th, be doing uh, a webcast on coronavirus and the clean economy with uh, our four Verge analysts, uh, Katie Fehrenbacher on transport, uh, Sarah Golden on energy, Jim Giles on carbon and food, and Lauren Phipps on the circular economy. And then um, a couple of weeks later on May 14th, I'm going to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the inimitable and always lovely to talk to John Elkington, um, who's the uh, founder of the of the think tank and consultancy sustainability, uh, which is uh, now part of of ERM, but um, runs a company called Volans. And more to the point, he has been at the front of the pack of thinking and vision about uh, sustainability. Back before it was really called sustainability in the, in the 80s, he coined the term triple bottom line. He's got a new book out, his 20th, about green swans. And we'll, we're going to talk a lot about that. What about you? So I have two. I just did have to one-up me there, Joel. So. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, but I, I have two. Uh, one I'm particularly intrigued by. Uh, I don't know. I, I haven't really had much of the prep calls yet. But Qantas has a great new concept called, they're calling Absolute Zero. And uh, it, it's sort of a deeper, a deeper dive into science-based climate strategies. And it's and, not a vodka. No, it's not a vodka. Okay. I, it, it would be a good if it was a the caloric count of a vodka, though. Would it, <laughs> wouldn't it be? That would be good. <laughs> but uh, Qantas has uh, uh, got a seminar, rather a webcast that they're they're putting on, and uh, the the two guests are Microsoft, uh, Elizabeth Wellmont for, from Microsoft, and uh, Owen Hewlett from Gold Standard. So it's it's a Really sort of a, an interesting discussion of uh, the nuances between net zero and science-based targets and absolute zero. So And gold standard look, is the sort yeah. of go-to certification for car carbon offsets. Fair enough. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I neglected to mention that. I assumed, which I shouldn't do, but I assumed that people would know who they are. And uh, so that one is, is coming up on May 5th. And then the second is on May 28th. And it is based on a story that I published on Earth Day called... This is climate tech, and uh, it's really focused on what what those climate solutions look like. The tech, you know, you know that I love geeking out. So it's going to be a discussion of the technologies that are coming out to address specifically the climate crisis. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. My two guests so far are Andrew Beebe uh, with Obvious Ventures and Nancy Fund from DBL Partners. I'm working on some others, but. Uh, Excited to have that sort of virtual discussion of my story up on Earth Day. Two great venture capitalists in the what used to be called clean tech. We're now calling some of it car, uh, climate tech space. So 
Great. Well, and there's even more that we haven't even mentioned, so we'll direct you to the website. You can see all of the webcasts we have coming up. But enough about the future. Let's talk about the past, specifically the Week in Review. Well, let's start, Heather, with a story you did, an interview with the Chief Sustainability Officer of PepsiCo. Um, really, really interesting. Tell us what you did and how you got to talk with him and what you found out. Well, so I have been, uh, the gentleman's name is Simon Loudon, and he's been with PepsiCo for a quite a while uh, in various marketing and brand roles. And he was named their first chief sustainability officer in the fall of 2019. So he's only been on the job, what, seven months now? And uh, his his thought he knew what he was focusing on, but boom, now he has a pandemic to be contending with and that's completely uh, changing his worldview. And what I, I've been bothering him for months to talk to him and he finally agreed to chat about sort of what he's seeing and and how he's, how he's really rallying his team around the, um, the COVID-19 crisis. So I spent a little bit of time talking to him about how he's keeping his, um, his his morale up um, um, in his team, but uh, clearly, you know, his focus of his team first and foremost right now is on the the health and safety of PepsiCo's employees. Um, we know that the the food supply chain is undergoing just incredible strain, right? So with supply, as well as of course, concerns over health and safety, and and we've seen some plants had to shut down because of of epidemics within them and, and what does that mean and how do you how do you handle the safety of someone that's addressing it? I mean this is essential service. This is an essential service right now. Um, so basically I talked to him a little bit about that, but also about how he's not taking his eye off off the long term. So what do you mean by that? Meaning he is spending at least two hours a week with the PepsiCo chairman and CEO. And he those meetings have not stopped. Uh, if, if anything, they become much more focused on not just the, the, the short-term crisis, but on how they should be addressing the long-term. They actually even announced a, a commitment this week. They have signed on to the United Nations Global Impacts um, Business Ambition for 1.5 Degrees C pledge. So they, they don't want to take their foot off the pedal. I know some, some companies have paused. They're not. They're not pausing. And, um, you know, so... He's determined to to keep pushing forward and feels like this is, I, I hate to use the word opportunity, but all the smart executives out there are looking at ways to learn from this situation and to do better, to, to do better in the future. Yeah. So, uh, And I love that, that they're looking uh, increasingly at their agricultural footprint. And I think it's important to point out that, that only about 10% of PepsiCo's Revenue comes from uh, products that are labeled Pepsi. They've got Lay's and Doritos and Mountain Dew and Ruffles and Aquafina and Quaker Oats and Tropicana and a bunch of others. I think Naked is one of their brands. Um, and so a, a lot of those uh, have you know agricultural inputs: corn, potatoes, wheat, oranges. And um, and, and I love that they're they're really leaning into that and working uh, with. You said tens of thousands of farmers around the world, and a lot of them smallholders, and that's uh, a trend we're seeing a lot in supply chains now, and, and it's really great 
to see them doing that. But let, while we're on this sort of topic, let's move over to a, another story that you did uh, this week, Heather. Uh, very similar, in, except different, <laughs> around what happens to corporate sustainability uh, amid the, the, the pandemic. And, and you had some reflections from a number of sustainability professionals including you know Kara Hurst at, at Amazon and the CEO of, of Deno North America, Mariano Lozano. And um, that was sort of interesting, the C CSO of General Mills. Uh, it's just really interesting to see uh, what they're thinking, what they're doing, and how they're approaching this moment. Again, you know, talk a little bit about what you found. Well, so first I should say, I, I should thank these, these executives for sending in their thoughts. I've, I've actually been trying to and we've been you you've been doing this as well connect with with our friends in this sustainability community for the last few weeks right we're all concerned with each other and trying to understand what's going on and so i started sort of about 4 weeks ago just pinging all of the the companies that i knew know are doing really great work and uh asking hey you know how you doing what what are you thinking about what what's up now, what changes, what doesn't change. And thanks to everyone that did, that did respond for this. I want to say that first and foremost. Um, I just, I, what I found was that clearly uh, everyone that, that responded is determined, I would, I would use that word, to continue pushing forward. They see this as a catalyst um, to help others understand. They, 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 they're, they're out there connecting the dots between health, human health, and the climate crisis, um, and they're 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 not taking their eye off the, the long the long term as as you know that's the same as as what what uh, Simon Loudon from PepsiCo is doing, um, but of course they are very focused on dealing with the urgent crisis, and that will that will delay some things. So even though the long term goals are 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 there. There, we are going to see some slippage, um, I think, in, in terms of, of people meeting targets. Um, a specific example, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the story, there's this organization called Climate Neutral. I, we wrote about them last year. They, and their, their goal is to help basically uh, a lot of retailers and people that sell products get a, you know, do, do a carbon footprinting of their products, of their operations, and then offset. Uh, you know, share that information with Climate Mutual and then offset them specifically. So all birds and Kickstarter have been part of that. And uh, there's there was I think there's close to 100, 100 brands that are in there trying to to earn that designation. And they were preparing a huge announcement for Earth Day. And they, they basically had to hold back on some of the brands because many people are scrambling to to report and you know, that's actually probably is something that, that I should mention specifically and something we're going to be reporting on in the very near future, which is to say that there are going to be short term things like submitting data and giving updates on your carbon footprint and getting updates on your carbon footprint, getting updates on your water footprint that we are going to see slip. This, this could be a very tough year for corporate sustainability reporting. Right, because because we, the the numbers are going to be quite different um, if you can get the numbers. So yeah. anyway, yeah. so yeah, but, but, but the good news, Heather, is that it it may be the reporting may be slow in coming or may even go away for a bit. But the the actual work is still being done, and uh, I loved you know hearing from. 
from Mariano Lozano over at Danone about the work they're doing. Again, a lot of uh, a lot of agricultural and farming related things. Maybe it's uh, some, because some of these are, are food companies um, and the work that they're doing with dairy farmers uh, to ensure their the well being of of the farmers uh, and of course <laughs> the cows. But uh, you know, particularly now. But but these aren't necessarily virus driven projects these are these are things that have been going on all along and and in general mills uh, uh Mary Jane Melendez the chief sustainability lead there talking about um the, the regenerative ag uh, pilot they have in Kansas with 24 wheat farmers and the f- work they're doing in no- North Dakota Saskatchewan and Manitoba with 45 oat farmers all around regenerative farming techniques um that's really encouraging yeah, and you know, I I love I I loved uh, Salesforce's contribution as well. Patrick Flynn, Vice President of Sustainability, there, he he his his sort of parting thought was very thoughtful, and I, it's one that I took a great deal of hope on, hope from, and his hope, and, and I'll quote him directly: "My hope is we emerge from this with greater collaboration, compassion, skill, and buy-in to do today what we know tomorrow is demanding of us all." I love that sentiment. Amen to that. Well, let's move over. We've got a couple more stories we'll, we'll get into right now. Uh, uh, and this one is from uh, Ben Holland at uh, Rocky Mountain Institute and a regular Green Biz contributor around uh, how the pandemic has exposed what he calls the fragility of autocentric cities. Uh, this is the whole transportation thing is just really kind of crazy right now because, on the one hand, people aren't going anywhere, but as we start to go somewhere, uh, are people going to want to get back on buses and subways? Um, and and if not, uh, then what what are the alternatives? And alternatives are, are largely driving, or I guess you know biking for some people, and and scooting and things like that. But you know how we get back into our sustainable uh, transportation systems uh, is going to be a really big challenge. And and you know as he points out, um, America for one is just not built for that. Hmm. Yeah, I, I did not know this statistic. 75% of residential areas of cities are zoned for single family detached homes. So that like basically shuts out multifamily housing as well as commercial spaces. So and th- so there's a lot of zoning policies and, and 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 planning techniques and strategies that are so antiquated and they completely support the the sort of autocentric as as the headline suggests uh, design of, of urban of urban centers. Um, and I, this is something I didn't think about, but if you don't have a car right now, how are you going to get your groceries? If you're in a city, and P.S., if if this transportation system is shut down, as it is in many places, not completely, but completely, very limited, how are you going to get your, your groceries home? I don't know if you've tried to order any of them online, but you know, it's not very easy. Uh, the, that the capacity yeah, is not there to support that. They're simply not delivering. They're they're, yeah. they're at capacity. Yeah. But you know, yeah. this isn't a, pr- a problem that's unique to the to the mm-hmm. pandemic. Uh, I was in uh, Dallas, I guess, last fall at, at one of our Green Biz Executive Network meetings, and we had uh, uh, dinner at a restaurant, a farm to table restaurant in one of the, what used to be, well, it still is one of the the poorest hard scrabble parts of Dallas. And they're talking about the fact that, you know, to go to the supermarket, to go to a grocery store, um, you have to take two buses. Um, and by the way, they're not all, you know, don't even stop that close. You have to walk away. So if you're carrying, you know, more, you know, two bags or certainly more than two bags of groceries, that's not really doable. Not to mention the fact that it may be an hour each way 
uh, of bus riding to get there once the bus actually comes. And so, yeah, we're, <laughs> there's a, you know, but, but the, to Ben's point, the, the pandemic has laid bare a lot of these deficiencies, not just in transportation, and lots of things in our society that we need to, uh, you know, fix and um, get right uh, eventually. Uh, but yeah, the transit um, is is just going to be a really mm-hmm. interesting problem as we as we go forward. Mm-hmm. Very thoughtful piece. And you know, there's another thoughtful piece I'd like to bring up, and it's your piece from this week. <laughs> Biodiversity, pandemics, and the circle of life. Um, we've we've seen some stories on on the the link between the pandemic and and animals and and deforestation and so forth. And what I loved is is you're connecting this to the biodiversity debate. This is supposed to be the super year for biodiversity. There was supposed to be a ton of of conferences. Tell us, tell me about about uh, your thinking here. Well, you know. I just have been seeing more and more stories, and I've been watching and writing about biodiversity and um, nature-based solutions. I wrote that piece in the State of Green Business Report this year about the growing movement towards uh, harnessing the power of ecosystem services to mitigate the effects of the climate crisis and, and, and other environmental challenges, while also addressing social issues like uh, you know farm farming and particularly in developing uh, economies. Uh, and so this has been biodiversity uh, has been a topic of growing interest um, in general. And as you said, this was supposed to be the year where there's a big World Conservation Congress in France and an ocean conference in Portugal and a nature summit in New York, I think, during Climate Week. And then there's this Paris for Biodiversity, this big COP, UN COP conference uh, supposed to be in China in October. None of that's happening, of course. And, uh, you know, some of that will come back. Uh, I guess later or next year, uh, but the but the reality is is that you know we were supposed to be uh, you know having this big focus on nature and nature had other plans you know and and so uh, there as as we're discovering uh, and not just now but in, in the past that we've long known that infectious diseases are often often take place at the nexus between nature and and agriculture and mining and other human activity. And this goes through, you know, Ebola and H1N1 and MERS and SARS and Zika and all those things. And now COVID-19, all of them trace back to the interactions of humans and animals of some sort, insects or or, or mammals or bats, uh, I guess they're mammals. And, um, and so, you know, now that we understand that, uh, you know, we, the, import of of importance of biodiversity looms even larger that you know as we log and dam and and build and around cities and coasts and other remote places you know this becomes a more critical factor of how do we manage that so we don't have more and more pandemics so even though these conferences aren't happening Joel though I think a lot more people are thinking about this than maybe I mean this this definitely they're not getting the in-person impact of, of needing to focus on this, but I think more companies are starting to realize this. And I think efforts like what Microsoft is doing, uh, their announcement last week about you know their commitment, you know it's it's that being that they don't have that much land and touch that much land, that their actual commitment is 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 not that huge, but their their pledge to to provide their technology to help with more research here, I think, is a is a great start and something we 
we can do while we're social distancing. Yeah, and, and I guess that was the, the, the gist of the articles is this growing business interest and concern over this. There's an organization called Business for Nature. Uh, it's, a, it's a global coalition of, of companies and other organizations thinking about uh, how do you reverse nature loss? And there's committed uh, some commitments to, by 2030 of what's, of what's possible. Um, in the world, uh, uh, WBCSD and um, the World uh, Envir- uh, Economic Forum uh, have created different uh, entities and projects and um, activities around this. So we're starting to see companies appreciate this. And, and to their earlier point about uh, General Mills and a bunch of other companies, Danone and others that are leaning into regenerative agriculture, it has a lot to do with protecting biodiversity. That's certainly one big part of it, uh, understanding that we can't grow our food supply uh, the way it's going to be needed in the years ahead if we're not also taking care of nature. What can the coronavirus crisis teach us about the climate crisis? How can we apply what we're learning to strengthen our economic and environmental resilience? Dick and Pinner is a senior partner with McKinsey and the lead on the consulting firm's global sustainability practice. Pinner and his team are studying the potential impact of the pandemic on climate strategy. He joins us on Green Biz 350 to discuss that research. Hello, Dickon. Hi, Heather. How are you? Great. I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you. So I'd like to start with this question. Why is the risk profile of a pandemic similar to the potential disruptions we might experience because of climate change? I think it's important to start by noting that while all hands must now be on deck to save lives and livelihoods during the pandemic, it is also critical to begin the planning for what greater economic and environmental resilience is going to look like as part of the recovery. And moreover, I think many climate change mitigation adaptation measurements have the potential to actually accelerate our way out of the recovery. So that's the framing. But in terms of the similarities that you allude to, I think there are at a high level, there are kind of similarities and differences, and we can dive in. But at its highest level, addressing both pandemics and climate change requires a shift from optimizing just for the short-term performance to ensuring longer-term resiliency. So that's the highest level similarity. And at the same time, a difference is that you know, climate change could happen over far lengthier uh, time horizons than, than what we see on, uh, on the virus. So you have to take those two things into account. But maybe we can take each of those in turn. Okay, so let's do that. Perfect. So on the, on the similarities, I think, you know, I see three things. First, both are physical shocks that happen to, uh, you know, to the financial and real economy. Um, and they have a variety of socioeconomic impacts. And those physical shocks are actually very hard to deal with. Uh, for example, healthcare systems, uh, physical assets, buildings, supply chains, etc., have all been designed to, to operate within a very narrow band. And when those bands are exceeded, as we're seeing now, say, 
with the virus and things like hospital capacity, those systems start to fail quite quickly and quite non-linearly. And I think the coronavirus illustrates how expensive that failure of building resiliency can be. So the first one is the both physical shocks. The second one is they actually have several important characteristics that are very similar. Uh, one is the nonlinearity um, I uh, alluded to in terms of the impact that they can have and the rate at which they can spread. Um, secondly, they're both risk multipliers. So they don't in and of themselves you know, cause complete attribution of something going wrong, but added to the risk of a system that's already got a bunch of things going on, they can multiply the risk and, and sort of take it over uh, key tipping points. And then lastly, that a lot of the impacts are regressive in that they impact the the most vulnerable um, bits of society, often the worst. And I said that the, the third similarity is, you know, both of them in terms of how you deal with them represent a bit of the tragedy of the common situation in that they require a global response. And if if one person does something and another person doesn't, then the the sort of the ability to control it is a lot uh, is is significantly sort of limited. So that th those are sort of three of the differences. Uh, sorry, those are three of the similarities that we see. Yeah. So when. But they're also important differences. So what sorry. are what are those important differences? The, the first, and I think most critical, is the time scale. In that pandemics happen over days, weeks, months, years. Um, uh, and climate change happens over a longer period of time, so years, uh, years and decades. Um, so that's the first one. The second one is that the virus, you know, terrible uh, as it is, will abate over time, um, and but climate change may not. In that the impacts can, you can have runaway impacts, and they tend to go up and to the right. They don't necessarily roll over. And then the third big difference, I think, is the level of correlation, spatial and temporal. So the virus, as we know now, seems to have very high level of correlation. It's happening all over the world simultaneously, you know, effectively impacting the economies of all countries at the same time. Whereas I think that the impacts of, of climate change, although very significant, will not happen with the same degree of uh, correlation. So they'll be kind of rolling from region to region, depending on the time of year or other conditions. That's right. So we know that the impacts or the initial physical impacts of climate change are sort of intensely local. And yet we also know by the nature that the systems are sort of interconnected, that the ripple effect of the impact can be felt globally in financial markets, etc., um, but probably in a sort of different way and, and a slightly less correlated way in, 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 than, than we're seeing with the, the virus, basically you know, turning the, the demand function of the, the world down considerably all at the same time. So we've seen some pretty creative strategies for dealing with the current crisis, right? So everyone's teleworking <laughs> or everyone that yep. can telework is teleworking, right? So not every job can be, do, can be done that way. Um, companies yeah. are looking at their key, their, their supply chain partners and thinking about how to get goods in different places than before. So these are very creative responses in the moment. How could some of these responses uh, help reshape corporate strategies for climate change? What, what, we can, what can we learn about that? Well, I think there are 
several things that could accelerate um, the, the, the learnings around climate change. And there are importantly also things that could decelerate. And I think you have to consider, consider both. Um, on, the, on the positive side, or the you know, things that may change, I think there is a question of you know, the change to demand that we're seeing, both in the aggregate amount of demand, but also the modal shifting. As you said, it, you know, it moves, we're seeing a migration of you know, work from you know, being physically in buildings to remote, we're seeing the, the increased use of digital channels. Um, there's a, I think there will be a question when things recover, how much of that sticks versus reverts to the norm. Um, I think we're seeing um, a, a migration from global to local uh, when it comes to things like supply chains. Um, so there's a question of, you know, will some supply chains be relocalized or shortened in some form? Um, I think, of course, now also in response, the, the fiscal response, we see very low interest rates, which could help with uh, the deployment of uh, uh, sustainable infrastructure. Um, and I think also we're seeing the increased reliance on expertise and science and also the, the realization that around resiliency um, and long term planning, that the, the role of the, the, the um, government can play an important role. So I think that those are several of the things that we see that could potentially uh, stick in some form coming out of this uh, crisis. However, I think there are also several things that could slow things down, and it's the balance between those that will determine how this pans out. Mm -hmm. Well, so what could slow it down? Well, I think a couple of things that that might you know decelerate. Um, one, we are, we have very low uh, low prices for certain fossil fuels, which mm -hmm. could uh, you know accelerate the lifetime of of some of those uh, high emitting assets. I think whilst interest rates are lower, which we commented on before, the level of wealth is also lower, and so will you know capital decisions be delayed to deploy new and more sustainable infrastructure and and then i think the we we said at the beginning this is a bit of a tragedy of the commons problem and we're still not seeing a global approach to the problem um and it tends to be a bit more country by country um and so that that's something that would have to be reckoned with as well to to end up with more sort of multilateral collaboration mm -hmm. So one final question for you. What's the most constructive way that corporate sustainability professionals can prioritize during this moment to make the most of this opportunity without being tone deaf to the current crisis? Well, that, that's an excellent question. And so I, I think when you look at the balance between the, the positives and the negatives or the accelerants and the decelerants, you, you uh, end up with a, a list of things um, I think that could be helpful. So first, if we think through companies, um, you know, companies were making a lot of decisions around to move to more sustainable infrastructure in the form of renewables or efficiency, uh, electrification of transport. And in many cases, that was done because it was an economic decision. 
um, and because the cost of those technologies has come down. Now, in a tightened environment, making that economic decision hasn't changed. If anything, it becomes even more important. So the, the things that were in the money um, will become you know, even more important. So you know, the, keep, keeping a, a, an eye on, on those. Um, I think another area is looking at all the sustainability and climate change measures that you were thinking of as a company and thinking through which ones of those both accelerate uh, you know, cost savings, but also job creation. Uh, and, I, and I think that part of this recovery, there'll be uh, a lot of appetite to put, put large pe- groups of people back to work. And I could see combinations of public-private partnerships uh, attached to some of the, the stimulus measures being being rolled out could actually drive a very interesting and important part of the uh, recovery. Um, and then I think you know what we're seeing at least is companies taking a through cycle look at climate change and sustainability. If if anything, we see some uh, investors and and companies increasingly seeing the similarities between these two things and realizing that resiliency and risk management is a really important part of the equation. So really understanding your own risk profile, um, both physically and from a transition risk point of view, I think is gonna be increasingly important as investors and regulators and governments are are increasingly gonna look for it. So I think there are many things that uh, companies can do here. And what we're beginning to see is is some companies really sort of beginning to drive um, decarbonization programs of their assets that both take out carbon, but also take out long-term sort of operating costs and make the the program more sort of economically viable and more resilient over time. But you have to rack and stack those opportunities because not all of them will make sense today. Well, Dickon, thank you so much for your insights today. I appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Well, Heather, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. just heard from Dickon Pinner, senior partner with McKinsey and the lead on the consulting firm's global sustainability practice. Hey, it's Deanna Anderson, associate editor here at Green Biz. This week, Earth Day went digital, and that's thanks to a lot of youth activists across the U.S. and the world at large. Ahead of Earth Day, I spoke with Jim Ray Gannon and Sarah Goody, two organizers with the Bay Area-based Youth vs. Apocalypse, or YVA, as they like to call it. We spoke about what Earth Day means to them and their efforts to mark the day despite having to adhere to social distancing measures. I have a story up on the side about it. But something that stood out to me when chatting with Goody is that YVA's work will continue beyond Earth Day, just like I'm sure is the case with many listeners. Here's her response when I asked if she had any final thoughts to share about what's important as the environmental justice movement continues. To me, what's important is not only prioritizing our environment, but prioritizing the frontline communities who have been disproportionately affected by climate change and by other social justice issues um, and by the economy. And it's 
putting forward solutions that will not only benefit our environment, but benefit everyone on this earth. And that will work towards building a future where we can all live in, I know this sounds cheesy, but in harmony and in peace and where we can all um, be seen equally in each other's eyes. So I think that it's important that with climate organizing and youth activism that we understand that it's not only a fight for our environment, but it's a fight for our people, our ancestors, and the people who will be following in our footsteps. This episode is sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization offered online and on campus. Visit vusustainableengineering.com. We're going to leave you this week with a bit of a song from Banu Kanabeli, a singer and songwriter from Istanbul. It's called Earth Is My Home. It's calling, and she describes it as a song released by Fridays for the Future Turkey. and heat you're used to now glaciers are melting you think it's normal how yeah. cutting down the trees stop littering isn't that enough plastic you are creating the eyes of whales and seabirds are hollow they all have the right to live so listen hello stop feeding into the cycle of fossil fuel zero carbon emissions should be your tool banks markets governments now is your chance declare climate emergency just take a stand for that great contribution. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organizations, stories, and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, 
check out our free e-newsletters. We have six every week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. And as always, we love to hear from you. Email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay home, stay safe, and as always, thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs>